You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth contained in it. God, as Stephen prayed earlier, open our eyes that we might receive the truth, truths of this text with gladness. Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts. Let us perceive these truths. Let us apply these truths to our lives and see what you have for us. Let the true Christians that are here this evening, let them have assurance of salvation as they walk out. And if there are any false converts among us, Lord, I pray that you would scare them, that you would put the fear of God into them, that they might repent and believe on Christ and be saved and have that same assurance. Please use me this evening, Lord. If you do not, this is all in vain. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so verse 13, John starts out. We're just going to walk through this verse by verse. Lots of stuff. So he says, by this we know. Right, so by this we know. Like many times before, John signals to us, right, by this we know, signals to us that he is talking about assurance, as we said in the introduction. Um, and whenever, we talk, whenever we're talking about assurance, what we mean by that is that we can have peace with God and be confidently settled in our hearts that we are saved. Right, and assurance means a lot. If you've ever went a stretch of time in your life as a Christian lacking the assurance of salvation, it is a living hell. You're just being scared all the time. How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that God will accept me when I die? How do I know whenever Christ returns that I won't be cast away? How do I know that I've been converted? Right, without assurance, you will live a life of misery. Right, so he says, by this we know we can have assurance. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Now obviously that he there is a reference to God. So John says that we can know that we abide in God and God in us. Now what does that term mean? What does it mean to abide? In short, to abide means to live in. right? And here John is talking, talking about mutual in, uh, abiding or mutual indwelling, our living in God and God living in us, right? This is a big theme for John. You can read it all over the gospel of John and the prayers of Christ all over this letter. John uses the word abide more than any other writer in the New Testament, right? But this theme of abiding, right? I'm just curious. I want to take a poll. Who else is like, has always been like, I think I get it, but I'm not sure. Like, it's kind of like eluded you. Like, abiding seems like a mystical kind of, I don't know. I'm the only idiot in here. Thank you. Very much. You all have really helped me uh, think much of myself as a man. I need humbling. Thank you. Um, but I understand abiding some. I understand it some. I understand it enough to, to preach this text, but I, I sometimes feel like that there's more to it than I currently understand, right? And I'm sure that there is because I've not been a Christian for all that long. Um, but I can say this about abiding in this text for certain. If we live in God, right? We're talking about abiding in God and God abiding in us. If we live in God and God lives in us, then this means that we are in a right relationship with him and have been reconciled to him, right? And that fits John's theme of assurance throughout this passage in the entire letter, right? So I can say that in this text, abiding means that we are in a right relationship with God, right? Because everyone's in a relationship with God. You're either a child of God or a child of wrath, but everyone is in some kind of relationship to God. But we can know that we're in a right one, 
right? So we can know that. Why? Because he has given us of his spirit, right? It's a reference to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit. So I'm saying we've been given of his spirit. John's talking about the new birth. He's talking about us being born again. John, again, this is a big theme for John. Uh, In this letter, he talks about being born of God or born of the Spirit. Jesus Christ, in the third chapter of John's gospel, talks about being born again. You You can't even see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again, unless you're born of the Spirit or born from above. I know that a lot of this is review, but every time that I see like a, a chance, I'm going to talk about the new birth because this gets jacked up in a lot of American theology, right? A lot of people use the word uh, born again or the phrase born again or new birth as synonymous with making a decision for Christ, and that's, uh, that's not true, right? That, that will happen as a result of the new birth, but g- getting saved or making a, a decision for Jesus is not the same as being born again. The new birth is the supernatural act of God the Holy Spirit upon a sinner that causes them to go from spiritual death to spiritual life. That's the new birth. Again, living now. And in the new birth, the sinner's heart is open to God. And they are given the gift of faith. Prior to this, they could not believe in God. They could not believe savingly in Christ, rather. And they are given the gift of faith and the desire to repent and believe the gospel. In the new birth, the sinner is given a new nature where they now hate the sin that they formerly loved and they hate themselves for having committed it and now they desire forgiveness from God and they desire to obey God's law and to love Him and to trust in His Son. Right. So the new birth is the first thing that happens to the Christian. You can make all the decisions you want. You can walk the aisle all you want. You can ask Jesus into your heart a thousand times a day, and that does not mean that you have been born again. Right? The new birth is, is something other. Right? You're, the entire man is changed. This is incredibly important, right? knowing that we've been born again, because John says this is how you know that you're in a right relationship with God. But the new birth seems a little bit subjective, right? It seems a bit subjective. Like you can't see the new birth and you can't feel it. And if anyone says you can, they're being goofy. Right? You can't feel the Holy Spirit. Right? If people get like chill bumps whenever they sing music. Oh, did you feel the Spirit? It's like, no. <laughs> I got a little bit emotional, but I didn't feel the Spirit. He indwells in me at all times. Anyway, so you can't see the new birth. So we would naturally ask, how do I know that God has given me of His Spirit? How would I know that? And John answers us, I think, in verses 14 and 15. He says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So after he says, you need to know that you're born again. If you know you're born again, you know that that you've been saved. You know you're in a right relationship. And then John immediately references the apostolic message of salvation. All right? And that reason why I believe he's referencing the apostles, he says, we have seen and testify, right? Only the apostles have seen. You you can't say that of his writers. They saw the resurrected Christ. They saw Christ in the flesh. But I think what John is implying here is that we have received this message of salvation. We've received the message of the gospel, and we have savingly, gladly believed it. We've gladly believed this message of salvation. And this is the message The Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If someone were to ask you, what is the core message of Christianity? There it is. The Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. 
God the Father, out of His great love and grace towards sinners, gave His only Son. Like we talked about a couple weeks ago, His only begotten Son, the unique One. Gave Him up to be the Savior of all kinds of people. That's what John means there whenever he says world. He means some out of every group of people. To be the Savior of men and women from every tribe, nation, tongue, ethnicity. Again, male, female, Jew, Gentile, the world. That God's self-giving love of the will, His good sovereign pleasure, sent Jesus Christ into the world to redeem us from our sins. And Christ did so by keeping the law for us that we could not keep on our behalf and then suffering the wrath of God that was due to us in our place, in our room instead, to save us from our sin. John says that we have received that message and believed it. That's why he says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, that's, I think that's him alluding to, you have repented and believed in this message. We have confessed that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Savior of the world, sent by the Father for us. We've heard this gospel message and then concluded, I am a sinner, I need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior, and I trust Him, and I believe that He is all who He said that He is. And John says that all who truly believe that message, all who confess that Jesus is the Son of God, abide in God, and God abides in them. So this is how you know that you've been born again, right? Unregenerate people, the natural man, right? People who have not been converted do not believe this message in a saving way. They may assent to some facts about it, but overall the message is foolishness to them. Right? Because if it wasn't foolishness to them, they would have repented and believed on Christ and began to follow Him. Right? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Right? The things of the Spirit of God primarily, first and foremost, would be the gospel. They're folly to him. They're foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man, the one who has not been born again, is not able to believe or understand the truths of the gospel because they're spiritually discerned. You must have the Holy Spirit working in you to cause you to see these things. right? But Christian, we believe. Do we not? We believe Jesus is the Savior of the world. We've confessed Jesus is the Son of God. The things of God are not foolishness to us. We love this message because we've been given of His Spirit. So this objective knowledge now, I know that I've repented, I know that I've believed on Christ. This objective knowledge that we have received the Holy Spirit then leads us on to what John says next in verse 16. He says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. It's beautiful. We have come to know and believe. That should be taken as one thing. I know and believe it all at once. So since we know that by faith, In Jesus, we have been reconciled to God. We have become fully convinced of the love that God has for us. And who among us could deny that? If you really believe this message of salvation, how could you deny the love that God has for you? As we looked at last week, it messed me up. 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's love. That God sent His Son to take our sins upon Himself and to pay for them. 
that God sent and gave up His beloved, whom He loves more than anything, and did it so we, His enemies, may live through Him. How could we ever doubt the love of God towards us? How could we ever doubt that? Surely, we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God's proven it beyond question. He's loved us with an unfathomable love. The NIV says something I thought was good. It says that we have come to know and to rely upon the love of God. The love that God has for us. So all our hope and all our joy is in that God has loved us this way. Right? We're rooted in this. This is the ground of our confidence. This is the ground of everything for us. So I just want to stop here and, and pose a question to you. Are you convinced, Christian? Are you convinced of the love that God has for you? Are you convinced of that? Do you know that? Do you know how much God loves you? I know sometimes our faith is weak and we wonder how could God love a sinner like me? And what I mean by that is sometimes we sin and we struggle with the same sin for a long time and we think as we approach the well of God's mercy that whenever we drop our bucket down in, surely it's going to come up this dry, dry this time. How could God continue to forgive me? How could God continue to love me as I continue to struggle with sin? As I sin daily, surely the well of His mercy has run dry for me. Or we wonder, we question the love of God because He has laid a trial on us or is allowing us to suffer presently. Does He really love me? Does He really have grace and mercy for me? But we need only to look to the cross of Christ and see God's love on display for us. He gave His Son for us. That's how you know. If you ever question the love of God for you, behold, Christ crucified for you. See the love of God for you as Christ is hanged on a tree in your room instead, in your place. That's how we know God loves us. But now... As a result of knowing that God loves us, we continue to read, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So since we know that God loves us and that he is love, right? and again, he's proven this, we've seen that love is an essential characteristic of God, and he's loved us so much in Christ our Lord, since we know that, that we have come to abide, we have come to live in love. We've come to live in the love of God. Right? So the church, right? the people of God, those who have repented and believed, the church is a people who are daily drinking in the love of God. Right? That's what we are. We're a people who are daily meditating on the love of God. Right? And I don't mean that in a mystic sort of sense, like Eastern Orthodox kind of nonsense, but I mean that we are always reflecting on how God has loved us in Christ. We are always standing in awe, humbled before God that He has loved us like this. This is what we should be doing this daily. We should be constantly, we should wake up and, and do our best to begin to think, God has loved me in Christ. That's why I can face today. Face today without fear. I know God has loved me in Christ. I know that He'll do good for me. He's proven it in Christ crucified. We're always humbled. We're constantly beholding the love of God in our Savior. So the Christian is always coming back to this truth daily. This truth never gets old for us, that God has loved us in Christ. We're always coming back and drawing from it because it fuels everything that we do. It fuels our obedience. It fuels how we think. 
Right? It produces faithfulness. It causes us to bear fruit as we think about God's great love for us, as we live in it. But again, I think there's a bit of a double meaning here because also that phrase, we live in love, we also do that in the sense that we have now begun to love God. Not just absorbing God's love for us, but now we love God in return. Right? So the love of God leads to love for God. And love for God always looks like obedience to God. So there is now an abiding warmth and affection in our hearts toward the God who has loved us. And again, how could it not lead us to love God? He has saved us from damnation through the blood of His Son. How could we not have a deep and abiding affection for our God, our Father, who has loved us this way? So let me recap these four verses before we go on. Again, John's saying a lot of stuff. So we know that we are in a right relationship with God because we have believed the gospel message, which is evidence of the new birth. And now, as a result of that, we are fully convinced that God loves us and we, in return, love God. Verse 17. By this is love perfected with us. Stop there. By this is love perfected with us. By this is a reference back to verse 16. Okay? So because we are convinced that God loves us, and we now love Him in return, love is perfected with us. Right? Love is brought to its full expression, is what that means, perfected. It's brought to its full maturity in us. So the love of God towards us is brought to full maturity when we are convinced that God loves us and we love Him back. I know I'm repeating myself. I just want you to get this. I want you to see this. So the love of God has accomplished what God intended when we are convinced that He loves us and likewise we love Him in return. And the result of that is this. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. God's Love for us has been brought to maturity in us that we do not fear the judgment of God. Right now, John, I appreciate this about him. He's, he's talking, he's, again, he's soaring to the heights of the love of God for us. Beautiful. But John does not shy away from referring to the day of judgment. Because it's only against a black backdrop does the love of God appear so bright and so good. But he doesn't shy away from it. Because the the, the Bible is clear that there is coming a day when all people will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account. Please hear me. There's coming a day when all men will stand before God, specifically the Lord Jesus, and render an account. Hebrews 9.27 And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Or Acts 17.31 The Apostle Paul says, because he has fixed a day, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. It's Jesus. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead that it's going to be Jesus who judges. On that day, the day of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ will sentence all of the unrighteous and unbelieving to eternal condemnation in hell. Do you really believe that? Has that gripped you? Do you think on these things? 
that on that great day of the Lord, He will sentence all the unrighteous and unbelieving, from the youngest to the oldest, to eternal condemnation in hell. Think on all the people that you know that aren't saved. Is, is it not the vast majority of all people? It will be an awful day. The Bible describes the day of the Lord in some of the most horrific terms. Revelation tells us on that day that Christ will stomp on his enemies until the, like, a wine, like, wine, or like grapes in a wine press until the blood flows as high as a, a horse's belly. It will be an awful day. For the world, it will be a day of mourning and weeping. The Bible says when Christ returns, all the nations, even those who pierced him, will mourn. And Christ will judge all people. And those who have not repented and obeyed the gospel of God will receive unyielding justice and punishment for their sins. For the majority of mankind, that day will be a terror. But not for us. But not for us, Christians. John says that we may have confidence when we face the day of judgment. That's astounding. He says that we can boldly come into that day with no fear. No fear of the wrath of God. I used to grow up terrified thinking about the return of Christ. Terrified of considering I will have to stand before Him and render an account. I hated that day. I also wasn't converted, but I hated that day. It's terrifying. John says we can have confidence. We can boldly come into that day fearless. And then John gives us the root of that confidence. God's love for us has given us this. Last part of verse 17. We have confidence on the day of judgment because as He is, so also are we in this world. He is a reference to Christ. As Christ is, so are we in the world. So are we right now, presently. Hear me on this, Christian. As Christ is, as He is righteous, as He is loved by God, as He is never to suffer an ounce more of the wrath of God since His ascension into heaven, as He is, so are we. As He is, so are we now. We have, this is the imputed righteousness of Christ to us. We've been covered with the righteousness of Christ. We have been united to Jesus Christ by faith. So now what is said of Him, what is true of Him, is now said of us. It is now true of us because we are His body. We've been united with Him. He is our bridegroom. We are the bride. We are in a marriage-type relationship with Him. What He has is ours. What is said of Him is said of us. Beautiful. This is our confidence. Or this part could also mean that as Christ loves God, either way, these are beautiful. As Christ loves God and is loved by God, so are we in this world. We love God and are loved by Him. We don't love God perfectly. We don't love God like Christ loves God. We're sinners. But nevertheless, God accepts our attempts to love and obey because of Christ. Our weak love for God is then bathed in the blood of Christ and rendered acceptable to God. 
And God has promised that he will never condemn those whom he loves and who love him in return. This is our confidence. So regardless of how you understand that last part of verse 17, the meaning is clear. The person who trusts in Christ and relies on God's love and loves God will never be condemned. Never be condemned. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, Paul says one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Christian, you have not been destined for wrath. God predestined you for salvation before you were born. You have not been destined for wrath. We have assurance through the love of God and are found in Christ. But John then goes on to expound on this holy confidence that we have, and he does it in verse 18. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. There is nothing for us to fear from God. God's great love for us drives out all fear of his wrath. So hear me on this. If your faith is in Christ, if you love God and know that God loves you, don't be afraid of God. You have nothing to fear from God. So I want to make a a distinction here real quick. I want to make a distinction between the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom and being afraid of God. All right? We should have a fear of the Lord. And what I mean by that is a healthy, reverent fear of God. Theologians will refer to it as a filial fear. Right? Filial meaning son. Right? This, a son-like, reverent fear that a son has for a good father. Right? Now, I did not have a good father growing up until I, until I was in high school. But I know this from watching my friends. No child of a good father is afraid of their father. Those of you who had good dads growing up, you know that. If you have a good dad, you're not afraid of him, are you? You're not. You know that he loves you. You're convinced that he loves you because he's proven it to you. So our heart should be this towards God. God, my father, is stern. He is not to be trifled with, just like a good father. He is to be obeyed. If I sin, he will discipline me to bring me to repentance. But I am not afraid of him. I fear his discipline. I do not want to be corrected by him because I know if I do not repent easily, we will do this one or two ways. The easy way or the hard way. But I'm not afraid of him. I know he loves me and I know any discipline that he brings on me is for my good. He's proven his love for me and that he saved me while I was a sinner. How much more now that I'm in Christ will he love me? That's our view towards God, our Father. But John says that if we are afraid of God, if we have a paralyzing fear when we think about God, it's because we think that God is going to punish us, that He is going to condemn us. He says fear has to do with punishment. So if you're afraid of God, if you think about God and your heart just freezes up, it's because you think that He's going to punish you. But there is no punishment for us. If you've laid hold of Christ by faith, there is no punishment for you. God sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. To be the satisfaction of God's wrath on your behalf. 
to take the cup of the wrath of God and drink it down to its dregs. There is literally no wrath for the believer. Christ has done away with it. He satisfied it. So John's telling us that a Christian who lives a life afraid of God does not yet understand God's great love for them in Christ. They do not yet fully understand what Jesus Christ accomplished for them in His life, death, and resurrection. Let me say this as someone who was terrified of God for years. What great freedom there is to not fear the wrath of God. What great freedom there is there. And furthermore, God wants us to love Him, does He not? And you shall love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Everything that you have, God wants us to love Him. And God knows, as we can, can, can glean from just human experience, He knows that we do not love that which we are afraid of. You may obey, but you'll grow to hate what you're afraid of. Like a dictator. Right? People obey, they'll obey a dictator. It's not because they love him. It's because they're afraid of him. And then over time they grow to hate that dictator. God wants us to love him so he has removed our fear. So that we can truly know him. That we can truly begin to love him. Which leads us to verse 19. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. This reminds us of, again, 1 John 4.10 that I read. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he has loved us, right? Now we love him, so that we love is primarily directed toward God. We now love God because God first loved us, and he has taken our fear from us so that we're now free to serve him without fear all the days of our lives. So as John and Jesus have told us, though, to love God is to obey him. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, John 14, 15. So now we love God because he's first loved us. Now we obey God. But again, this is beautiful. We don't obey God out of a servile fear. Right? It's not that we're servants afraid that our master is going to beat us. But now we serve God out of gratitude because he's given us his son, Jesus Christ, our savior. Right? And again, this analogy, you guys have heard me use it so much, you're probably annoyed. If I saved your life, and somehow lived through it, right? Like pushed you out of the way of a truck, took the blast from the truck for you, lived through it, and then me and you are hanging out uh, a little bit later on, because I lived, thank God, and I ask you to do something for me. You're going to do it. You're going to do it. Will you cut my grass? Absolutely. Will you get me a, a beverage out of the refrigerator? Absolutely. I'll do that for you too. Whatever you ask me for, I'll do it because you've saved my life. I'm indebted to you. And it's not because I'm afraid of you, it's because I'm grateful for what you've done for me. How much more to the God who has saved our soul? How much more to God? But then John goes on to open up this we love idea. He opens it up to include other people, right? And this is just natural logic for John. You love God, you love others. Verses 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. All right, so loving your fellow Christian is a huge, huge concept from this chapter, as we've talked about for weeks on end as we've been in chapter 4 of this letter. But I think John goes into these last two verses that sound like warnings, 
right? Do, do they not? Like, if you say, I love God and don't love your brother, you're a liar. That's strong. That's a warning, right? Because only those who love God have confidence. This is a warning that John's giving us, and I think he gives us these two warnings for one major reason. Right, so hear me. After, after talking about the assurance of salvation and confidence on the, on the judgment day, John does not want us to be self-deceived. Right? He doesn't want us to have false assurance. John says all over this letter that the true Christian has three major marks in their life. Again, the three tests. Doctrinal, moral, and love. And two of these tests are found here. Right? Love for your fellow Christian and obedience to God. That's what we see in these two verses. Verse 20 says, again, what's implied is you must love your brother if you love God. There's the love test. And then verse 21, it took me a while to catch this. He says, and this is the commandment. Right? So if you love God, you obey his commandments. So there's the moral test of obedience to the law of God. John ties them both in in two verses that sound very similar to one another. Right, so he's saying if you don't love God, in verse 20, if you don't, or if you love God, then you love what he loves. And we know God loves his people because he sent his son to be their savior. If you don't love his people, then you can't really love him. Because again, you'll bear a family resemblance. You'll begin to look like him. You'll begin to love what he loves and hate what he hates. And likewise, verse 21 reminds us that love for the brothers, again, is a commandment. And John says those who love God keep his law. So where there is no love and no obedience, there has been no new birth. I think that's what John's telling us. Therefore, there is no confidence at the judgment. Please hear me. This is so, so important for us to know. The new birth changes your life. This is incredibly important for us to know because the vast majority of professing Christians in the world falsely think that God will gladly embrace them at the judgment. The vast majority of of, of professing Christians. Seventy-some percent of this nation claim to be Christian. The vast majority of these people think God has, has no wrath for them. And they think it under a false pretense. They think it falsely. And their lives prove that Jesus is going to say to them, Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. All right, and John is a good pastor. And John wants us, rather he wants to protect us from that false assurance of salvation. So while John tells us of the beautiful confidence that is ours for the taking, he also reminds us not to deceive ourselves. And hear me, this warning is a great blessing and grace from God to us. Okay, the warnings and threatenings in the scriptures are actually for our benefit. And they're not to be ignored. Right? Just because we, we believe in the perseverance of the saints, uh, also known as eternal security, I'll keep in mind it's the perseverance of the saints. And the warnings of scripture help us persevere, help us take the commandments of God seriously. So in summary, before we go into application... We know that we are reconciled to God because we have been born again and believe the gospel message. And as a result, we've become fully convinced of God's love for us, and now we love God and no longer fear the judgment. Assurance is ours. But where there is no love for others and no obedience to God, there can be no confidence on the day of judgment. 
Because receiving God's love and loving God leads us to obey Him and love one another. I know that was a lot. But again, John's tying everything together in this letter at this point. But here's some application for you. I know we're going into this. I've got two major points that I want us to cover this evening. The first point is broken up into three spots. So I trust that God will convict those of us who need it and encourage the rest. Again, the first point has to do with assurance, obviously. Both of them have to do with assurance, rather. But John has aimed this passage at our assurance of salvation. And as I said in the introduction, I know that this is something that many people struggle with. Right? Many people lack assurance. So I want to I I address three kinds of people that, that struggle with or lack the assurance of salvation because I think there's a good chance um, all three of these groups may or may not be with us this evening. The first group is this. So if I'm describing you, think. These are the people who are Christians. They love God. They strive to obey God. They daily repent. They strive to love others. They believe wholly on Jesus Christ to save them. But they are very aware of their sin. Very aware of their sin. They know they sin. And they know they sin daily. They know that they're not nailing it 10 for 10, not 24-7. Nope. But they desperately want to honor God. They wish that they were rid of sin. Sometimes they long for death where they might not sin anymore. But inevitably they do sin. And then they begin to fear that they aren't saved. That God doesn't love them anymore. That they're probably going to hell. Every time they sin, they wonder if they're going to go to hell or not for that sin. If that is you, if I just described you, please, please hear me. Get your eyes off of yourself and get them on Jesus. Period. Get your eyes off yourself and get them on Christ. Look to Christ. I have no idea what that means. There's a, there's a devil in these audio system. But get your eyes off yourself and get them on Jesus. Seriously. Come, come back in. Come back in. I know that was distracting. We're here again. Look to Christ. If that's you, you're someone who loves Jesus, but constantly terrified of the judgment. Obeying Jesus, but constantly wondering if you're going to go to heaven or not. Look to Christ, who perfectly kept the law on your behalf, because you can't do it. You should continue to try to, but look to Christ, who perfectly kept the law on your behalf, and Christ, who perfectly suffered the wrath of God in your place. It's His work that saves, not your obedience. See the love of God towards you in Christ. God accepts you in Him. So stop looking at your works and start relying more on Christ's. And you will be assured of salvation. The second group. These are the people uh, that they are Christians, but they are currently in a time of disobedience. This is probably uh, more people than we want to uh, admit here. You're in a time of disobedience. There's some sin, whether grievous or small, that you just refuse to let go of. And you know you need to. You won't let go of it. Or there's some positive commandment of God that you're just not taking seriously. Whether Again, maybe it's loving the, the fellow believers that we've been talking about. And you're just not taking it seriously. 
You're neglecting scripture, neglecting prayer, neglecting corporate worship. You're not striving for holiness. Overall, you have a cold heart towards God right now and you're doing nothing to try to fan the flames whatsoever. Let me say this, if that's you, you will not have assurance. You will never have assurance if that's you. You will never have the peace of knowing that you abide in God and He in you. Our obedience and striving for faithfulness does not gain us salvation. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. But without our obedience and without our striving to be faithful to God, you will never have assurance. Never. And I appreciate that from God. Me and Steve are talking about this because it is an internal spiritual check for us. You start to question whether or not you're saved. It's like that red light goes on in your car. And hopefully you don't ignore it as long as I have. Right? But you begin to go and, you, and try to fix it. Why do I feel this way? You begin to do an inventory of your life. That question of whether or not you're saved can often be a grace from God that leads you to repentance. Right? And if that's you, hear me. Repent. Repent. Take serious the holiness of God. Strive for the holiness without which no one will see, the, will see the Lord. Strive to kill sin. Stop neglecting the means of grace. Because if you want assurance of salvation, some effort will be involved. Believe that. And then lastly, this last group of people are the most serious. You live a life of disobedience. And there is no repentance. There is no real love for Christ in your life. You hear the gospel, maybe you've been in church for years. And you hear the gospel and it does nothing for you. You can answer all the questions properly, but it's just another thing. You have no real affection for God. You really care nothing for His law. You only obey the big laws that people can see whether or not you did it in public, right? Like you're not going to go out and get hammered at the bar, but there's going to be indwelling sin that you can do behind closed doors that you care nothing about getting rid of. You love your sin, you put on airs so that people around you think that you're okay. Think that you're godly. But really, you care nothing for His law. You put on a smile when you're here and you, you feign love for the brothers when you're here, but inside there is no real affection for God. And basically, you live life as you see fit for the most. You fear God's judgment because that is all there is for you. You're unconverted. If that's you, you're lost. You've not been born again. You're unsaved. You may be religious, but you have not been born again. Hell awaits such a person. God will reject you because you are outside of Christ. But I beg you, if that's you, repent and trust Christ. Repent and believe the gospel that Christ has suffered for you, that Christ has obeyed the law for you. Turn to Him. Get on your face before God and beg Him for the new birth. Beg Him for the gift of faith. Until you've repented and believed. Trust and follow Christ and be saved. But let me end with this. Christian, if you love God, if you have thrown yourself on Christ by faith, and you daily follow Him, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. I want you to take your God-given assurance. Take it. 
It's for you. God's given us this book that we might know that we're saved, that we might know we have confidence. Take your assurance and hold it in your heart and walk into the future knowing that nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hear me. You are saved. You will never suffer an ounce of wrath because as Christ is, so are you. We'll end with 1 John 4.17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your grace. For loving us in Christ in such a way that we could never merit, that we could never deserve. Thank you for giving us confidence for the day of judgment that we don't have to be afraid of, of standing before Christ and giving an account because we will be counted as righteous through Christ. Assure us of that. If there are, are Christians in here, God, that there is no heinous, grievous sin in their life, but they fight with assurance, Lord, I pray you'd bless them that the truth of the word that we've looked at this evening would hit them that they could rejoice and know, maybe for the first time, I am saved. God, for the foolish Christian in a time of disobedience, I pray you'd grant them repentance. That they would take serious or threatenings. And that they would repent. And God, for if there's anyone here who has not been born again, I pray that you would give the new birth that they might repent and believe. God, we do thank you so much for loving us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for the fact that we don't have to be afraid, that we are beloved children of God. So now we can pray with confidence. Though the wrath of God will be great on the world, come Lord Jesus anyway. Come and be with your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Anyway, amen.